fully understand the extent of Thomas Edison's genius, David Oshinsky will be here to discuss the new biography, Edison, by the late Edmund Morris. Which of the season's celebrity memoirs are most worth reading? Tina Jordan will be here to talk about books by Demi Moore, Julie Andrews, and Carly Simon. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. David Oshinsky joins us now to talk about a new book by the late Edmund Morris. The book is called Edison, and David Oshinsky is himself the author, most recently of Bellevue, Three Centuries of Medicine and Mayhem at America's Most Storied Hospital. And he also won the Pulitzer Prize for his earlier book, Polio, An American Story. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So we're here to talk about another award-winning writer, the late Edmund Morris. He died earlier this year. For those who aren't familiar with Edmund Morris, who was he? Edmund Morris was one of the great biographers of our generation. About three decades ago, he wrote a trilogy of Theodore Roosevelt. Volume 1 won the Pulitzer Prize. And he then followed up with a very controversial biography of Ronald Reagan called Dutch. Morris was so flabbergasted by Reagan, he found him inscrutable and, in quotes, simply boring, (laughs) that he had a writer's block. And what Morris did was to invent fictional characters, including one named Edmund Morris, who basically took the story out of Reagan's hands and told it themselves. So what you had was not a traditional biography, but a, but something that academics went crazy over, feeling that it had really perverted the mission of what a biography should be. But some writers, on the other hand, found it extremely inventive. Well, I'm curious to hear what you thought, because I think also people just felt like he had squandered this incredible opportunity because he was the authorized biographer of Reagan, and he had unbelievable access to Reagan while he was in office, that They then felt like this had just wasted all of that because you couldn't quite distinguish as a reader what was true from what was invented. I think that's absolutely right. And certainly as an historian, taking those kinds of liberties is an absolute no-no. On the other hand, there is nothing in the book, amazingly, that basically does not follow the factual record. In other words, these fictional characters were, were picking up on live events, and they really were talking about things that were in the archives, deeply buried, had never come out before. So in that respect... I think it worked. The problem was that once you invent fictional characters, the entire manuscript appears to be compromised. So it's interesting that Edmund Morris is considered such a famous biographer because really he was the biographer primarily of of Beethoven, of Theodore Roosevelt, and then in this book, Dutch, we're discussing of Ronald Reagan. He was not prolific. He worked very slowly. What were his work habits like? His work habits were unusual. He would consider 300 words a day to be a productive endeavor. And it took him three decades to write the Roosevelt Trilogy and 14 years to do Ronald Reagan. So he wasn't prolific, but each of the books was kind of stuffed with ideas and information. 
he has a vacuum cleaner approach to biography. What he does is to sort of scoop up massive amounts of information, and he often leaves it to the reader to separate the important from the tangential. But he is a prolific researcher. He really goes in there and he does his work. And he's a wonderful, Pamela, he's a wonderful writer. I mean, his, his prose just sings. And would you include this book in that assessment? I would include the book in the sense that it is filled with information. It is, I mean, Edison left five million pages in his archive, and it took Morris a a very, very long time to go through it. But in the same way as Dutch, what Morris did amazingly was to find a new niche, an angle, and he wrote the book backwards. It's like Benjamin Button. In other words, he starts with the death of Edison and then moves backward in time up until his birth in 1847. It's a device. I found it complicated. Mm -hmm. I, I found that we were, you know, suddenly getting people in the first hundred pages who were very late in Edison's life, and I had no idea how important they were to the earlier story. I think some people might find it inventive. I, as a reader and as a biographer, found it disappointing. Does he not explain himself in an introduction or anywhere in the book as to why he made this decision? No. And then he died, so we don't know. No, we don't. Each chapter stands on its own. The problem is when the chronology is reversed, you simply have no idea who really is important. And you have to keep flipping through the index. You know, where was this person? You know, how did this person fit into Edison's earlier life? What is the timeline here? On the other hand, you know, after doing Dutch, I think he just figured that biographies were not meant to be traditional and that he was going to break new ground on this and he was willing to take the consequences. You know, it's interesting because he got so much criticism for Dutch. I mean, as you said, people admired the storytelling for the most part. They admired the research. He obviously had unparalleled access. But in terms of that device, most people, most reviewers, I think, and readers were kind of befuddled. He's not around, so we cannot ask him exactly why he did it. The one thing I will say is that I do know the people at the Edison Archives in West Orange, New Jersey. It's an enormous archive, and Morris was a visitor day by day by day, Hmm. and he learned everything. He had to learn mechanical engineering, metallurgy, all kinds of stuff that he really was not equipped to do at the beginning, but he became self-taught. I admire that. I just wish the book had gone in the usual chronological order. You know, you would think that telling it backwards might be easier if you had someone who had maybe a less full life. But Edison filed 1,093 patents over the course of his lifetime. I mean, just even keeping track of all those inventions. And also, I would imagine a challenge now, 100 technological years later, to determine exactly how transformative and important each thing was at the time, because many of these inventions are now so out 
moated and obsolete. There are certain things about Edison that I think come through in Morris's book. One is that, as I mentioned in the review, you know, if he had his druthers, he would have just stayed in the lab all the time. But on the other hand, he had an amazing eye for other talent. He realized that he could not do this himself, and therefore he surrounded himself with extremely talented people. And he also set up really the first research and development organization in the country, first in Menlo Park and then in West Orange, where he not only invented, but it was how it was applied, you know, how it would be produced, what the consumer would use it for. All of this came together in kind of like, you know, like Bell Labs Mm -hmm. would do afterwards. And that is a remarkable, a remarkable step forward. And Edison really is the person who put that together. You use the word consumer, which makes me ask the question, did he make a lot of money off of these inventions? He did. He did. Edison was a tough businessman. And when it came to something like the incandescent light bulb or it came to AC versus DC current, you know, he could really, sort of going after a competitor like George Westinghouse, He would do anything to to bury this guy, to put him into the ground. But Edison also got people like J.P. Morgan involved in his various inventions, whether it was the light bulb, whether it was the phonograph, whether it was motion pictures. Edison always had big backers, and they not surprisingly, were the people that he treated best. Mm -hmm. He was not, in most cases, a nice man. And that included members of his own family. He was distant, and he could really be, you know, devastatingly cruel to them. And the children did not turn out all that well, to put it mildly. What happened? Well, I think Edison basically ignored them. Mm -hmm. Or if one or two of them came to work for him, he would let them see what the power access was and the fact that they were going to go so high and not higher. He wanted them to be supplicants. He was very, very hard, and he did not suffer fools lightly. He was a very difficult personality, and he was odd. He was eccentric. He barely ate. Barely bathed. Barely bathed. He didn't bathe very often. He wore as I say, clownishly baggy clothing because he believed that tight clothing would restrict the blood vessels in his body. He barely slept. And he was almost deaf, and yet he was the inventor of the phonograph. From the age of, like, 12, right? That is correct. He was completely deaf in one ear and partly deaf in another. Were there signs early on that this was a genius, that he was destined for great things? Yes. He was basically self-schooled. His mother took over his education. He he barely went to school. He was a voracious reader. His mother demanded it of him. She allowed him to take over the basement of this rural home and have all kinds of chemistry experiments that put the entire upper floors at risk. But what was clear was that he was frighteningly ambitious and that he just had a kind of inventive mind, and he didn't mind putting the time in. And that is so important. 
Invention is often repetition. You've got to do the same thing again and again and again. And Edison was that person. It was quite remarkable. So yes, I would say at quite an early age, whether it was telegraphy, whether it was inventing a vote tabulator for state governments. I mean, he did this at really a a very, very young age, whether it was at a very young age, really inventing the phonograph. He was enormously bright, frighteningly ambitious, and he had a kind of stick-to-itiveness that was extraordinary. I'm going to just run down a few of the inventions among those 1,093 patents. Incandescent light bulb you mentioned, x-ray fluoroscope, the stock ticker, the electric meter, the alkaline reversible battery, safety lamps for miners, slick candy wrappers, a submarine blinding device, a night telescope, a rotor life flying machine, and advances in the synchronization of movies and sound. I haven't covered all of them. but, (laughs) um, But I mean, if you had to pick out a story or two from the book stuck out with you, what would you choose? Um, You know, I, I would think one would be that as someone who was almost completely deaf, inventing the phonograph is absolutely remarkable. And the way he would do it would be to put a piece of wood between his teeth so he could hear the vibrations that would then go from his ear up into his brain. And to me, that is just incredible that something like that could be done. I think what was also remarkable about him was that he was looking for alternatives. One of his best friends was Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. And they agreed on many things. and, and Including but, politics? To some degree, Edison, like most people in that era, you know, had very strong feelings about different ethnic groups. And But Ford was a virulent anti-Semite. And Edison took a view that, yes, Jews had these negative things about them, but as they assimilated and there was less prejudice against them, they would really flower in the new world. So Edison, I think, was much more gracious. But what really made Edison remarkable was that at the very time his friend Henry Ford was working on a gasoline-powered automobile, Edison was working on an electric car. You know, he had to figure out the battery can't be that heavy. It's got to be rechargeable. It's got to go a certain distance. And he he basically had figured many of these things out. But at the very time he is coming to fruition, Ford comes out with the Model T. And the Model T is cheap. It's efficient. It runs on gasoline. You don't have to worry about recharging it. You don't have to worry about a giant battery that weighs X number of pounds. And the electric car kind of got shunted to the side, but it gives you a sense of his futuristic views. Yeah, I mean, what we didn't know then. Yes. You mentioned he was very competitive. Was he competitive with his friends? Was he frustrated by this? It would really depend on who the friend was. If it was someone like a J.P. Morgan or a Henry Ford or a Harvey Firestone, the answer would be no, that he sort of understood the power dynamic there. If it were people who worked for him, he was incredibly demanding. And if it was a competitor who really was moving into an area that he controlled, like George Westinghouse or Tesla, he could be absolutely brutal. To get back to Edmund Morris before we end, we don't know why he wrote this book backwards. Do we know why he chose Edison as a subject to begin with? I mean, it's the first major biography of Edison in 20 years, but was there any particular reason? 
One of the things that's remarkable about Morris is, is that he picks subjects that I think have an enormous impact on the world around them. And it's certainly Theodore Roosevelt in terms of politics and foreign policy. People who uh, really transformed. Yes, Reagan. You know, people still talk about it. So Edison was, I think, perfect. Pamela, this was an era when America was urbanizing. It was industrializing. Immigrants were pouring in. The whole dynamic was changing. You were going to mass production. You were going to consumer goods. And I think Edison fit into that perfectly. And it's a great device for a biographer, for an Edmund Morris, not only to talk about Edison, but to talk about the impact of his inventions upon the larger culture and the world beyond. Well, maybe that's why he started at the end. (laughs) I I wish I could ask him that question. David, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. David Oshinsky reviews the final book by the late Edmund Morris. It's a biography of Thomas Alva Edison, and it's called Edison. Joining us now from Washington, Jeffrey Brown is a senior correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, which is our partner on Now Read This, a monthly book club that exists on Facebook and through a newsletter, as well as on the New York Times and PBS NewsHour websites. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. Hi, nice to talk to you, Pamela. So we are here to talk about our November pick for the book club, which we will be diving into hopefully in the next few weeks. Yep. Tell us about that book, which is a novel by Richard Powers. Yeah, we've turned back to fiction. This The novel is The Overstory by Richard Powers. It won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction this past year. It's, uh, it's quite an interesting and unusual book. I was having some fun last night looking at, going back to look at some of the reviews. The review in the Times by Barbara Kingsolver. The headline was, The heroes of this novel are centuries old and 300 feet tall. And the headline in the Washington Post review by Ron Charles, The most exciting novel about trees you'll ever read. So I could imagine our viewers, our listeners, our readers sort of saying, huh, what, what's that? It is, in fact, a novel about trees, yes, but it is, of course, based on humans. It tells very human stories, human characters, but a lot of it is through their relations to the natural world. It's a very unusual one. We thought it would be a great thing to pick. I, I was afraid you were going to say one of those headlines was, he speaks for the trees, which I'm sure someone somewhere <laughs> used. But it is unusual in terms of the narrative structure in that the trees are often narrating the story. It's mostly unusual, I thought, because it's almost like a set of short stories. I've read the first half. I've, I did what I often do uh, in the case of our book club. I was just interested in the book, so I started reading it, and then I realized we were going to include it in the book club. So I sort of set it aside. So it develops in an unusual way, almost as a set of disjointed short stories, all of them uh, different characters at different times, and all of them in some kind of relationship, as I said, to the natural world, specifically trees. And then at a certain point, which is where I got to, you realize, you start to see the connections. Powers is clearly looking at a lot of the actual science that's happened around botany and forests and trees over the past, say, 20 years. I think some readers would know a recent popular book called Hidden Life of Trees. There's been a lot of work on this. Powers clearly has been reading into that. And in fact, one of the characters in this novel 
is a, a young botanist, a fictional botanist, who becomes fascinated with the way trees work, as have real-life scientists, and realizes that trees are, as the character says, social creatures. Right. They, they interact, they communicate, and, and in some ways they're interacting with all of us. And that's what this novel becomes. As with many of Powers' books, a lot of environmental themes will emerge, and I'm sure you'll have an interesting conversation. So if readers are interested in, and listeners to the podcast, interested in checking out the book, looking into Now Read This, where should they go? They can find us on our Facebook page, Now Read This, and they can also go, there's a newsletter that we keep, which puts out all kinds of information. They can find a link to that on our site, pbs.org slash newshour features now read this or you could just google now read this it's the book club of course as you said for the new york times and the pbs news hour and they can find a link to join us and you know they uh, get all kinds of uh, good stuff on the facebook page and on the newsletter interaction with the writers and questions that other readers are sending in and all kinds of interaction and then as you say, I'll talk to the author at the end of the month. Listeners and members of the book club can also pose questions there for the author, for Richard Powers, for our November read. So, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Jeffrey Brown is a senior correspondent at the PBS NewsHour in Washington, which is our partner on Now Read This, our monthly book club. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. What's going on? So there's been a fight brewing for a while between two groups who we normally think of as aligned in their interest, and that is public libraries and the publishing industry, specifically Macmillan, which is one of the big five publishing companies. And the conflict comes because Macmillan has decided, starting in November, to impose a two-month embargo on releasing new ebooks to public libraries. Why? Well, this is a good question. I think part of the rationale is that people are borrowing ebooks instead of buying them. At least that's what the CEO of Macmillan said. Publishers have been struggling a little bit with digital book sales. We've seen the ebook sales falling for mainstream publishers. I think, you know, self-published authors and Amazon have had better luck. But part of that has to do with pricing and things like that. So under the new rules, Macmillan will only allow libraries to purchase a single copy of its new titles for the first eight weeks after its release. And that's whether you're the New York City public library or a small town library. It doesn't matter the size of the population that you serve. Was that just for simplicity's sake? Frankly, I think it's to limit the amount of people that can borrow it mm-hmm. and nudge more people toward buying it. I think they want it to be in the catalog because it's new. I mean, that's useful for them to have the book out there. But, of course, the American Library Association is very upset about this. They actually delivered a written report to Congress recently saying that there was unfair behavior by digital market actors, meaning Macmillan. They also called out Amazon Publishing, which is Amazon's publishing arm, which won't sell to libraries at all. Hmm. So they can't even offer lending of Amazon's titles. I mean, was it controversial to begin with that libraries should be loaning out ebooks at all? Because... I mean, really, the libraries are buying physical copies of the books. People have to wait for them. But if they're buying ebooks, it kind of obliterates the whole economy of, of book selling. Well, not exactly. I mean, the, the libraries pay for the ebooks just as they pay for the print ones. And people have to wait to borrow the ebooks until they're available. It doesn't mean, you know, you would think, okay, it's digital, so it would be unlimited. Anyone can get it. But that's not actually how it works. If someone has checked out 
this single copy that they've made available, people are going to have to wait till it's available again. So I think it works fairly similarly to the print lending system. And libraries are a big market for publishers. I mean, they buy a lot of books for publishers. So I'll, I'll be curious to see how it plays out and whether other major publishers adopt similar practices. But it is interesting. And it is an interesting question in terms of digital lending. And this, I don't think, affects digital audiobooks, which you can also check out from the library. Why did Macmillan decide to do this now? And when asked about it, what is their rationale? So Macmillan made the announcement about this new policy in July, and in this memo addressed to its own authors and also to agents and the whole literary community, the company's chief executive, John Sargent, cited, quote, growing fears that library lending was cannibalizing sales as the reason for initiating this embargo and preventing libraries from purchasing more than one copy. So they're basically saying to authors, it's in your financial interest exactly. that we make this move. How did the American Library Association react to the news? So they have been pretty aggressive, both in their public messaging and condemning this new practice and, you know, trying to get lawmakers involved by going to Congress. They have collected signatures in a petition to deliver to Macmillan Publishers. And I think they've gotten almost 160,000 at this point or more. Mm -hmm. And those are from readers, some authors, library staffs, and patrons from all over the country. I mean, I've seen... Local libraries, people have forwarded me emails that their local libraries are sending out to their patrons basically saying, fight this, oppose this, sign this petition. So they seem to be very active in in terms of trying to gin up support. They have been. And I mean, I think they want to get the message across to library patrons that this is this is going to affect you. You know, if you ever borrow ebooks from us and you like reading new releases, this is going to be a problem for you. It's going to make it more difficult to read the books that you want. These are such tough issues because it pits two groups to which probably many of us are naturally sympathetic, readers who can't necessarily afford to buy the books, and also authors who don't necessarily make a lot of money off of their writing career. It is very interesting. And it's funny because, you know, the ebook revolution was something that the publishing industry really wrestled with. And just as it seemed like everyone had gotten past the major hurdles of, you know, this is not going to destroy the industry. Print is still selling. Some people like ebooks, but plenty of people like print. People listen to digital audio. It seemed to have stabilized. But there is still this tension about the digital economy and author compensation and reader and consumer expectations about ebook pricing. There's still this sense among consumers that ebooks should be cheap or almost free. And I think Amazon has set that expectation with right. Kindle Unlimited. So, yeah. And, and so the latest arena where we're seeing those tensions play out is between libraries and readers. I mean, it's really hard, I think, for readers to understand the economics of ebooks and the fact that just because there isn't a physical object, that that doesn't mean that there aren't costs that go into creating that book. And that, frankly, the pile of paper is probably the least of it because you have to pay for all of the services around editing and the author and publicity and everything else that goes into creating a book. One last question. There have been instances where one of the big five or when it was six publishers has kind of broken out and taken a stand. The most recent one, I think, was when Hachette challenged Amazon on a number of policies. What are the other four of the big five publisher saying? Are they staying quiet? Are they saying like, oh, no, not us. We have no problem. Like, 
Do we think that they'll be joined, Macmillan, by other houses? I think that's the big question right now. I think that's what the American Library Association is most concerned about. I think there's fear that everyone could decide this is lucrative. I think they might wait and see. Maybe Macmillan's ebook sales will surge as a result. I'd be surprised if they went up dramatically, but maybe they'll go up enough that it would make a difference for authors and for the publisher. And I think if you see a real economic benefit to this policy, you might see other publishers following suit for sure. All right. Alexandra, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Tina Jordan joins us now to talk about some celebrity memoirs. Tina, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So you reviewed... Three celebrity memoirs. I have them in front of me. They all actually weirdly look the same, just in terms of the cover art. Black and white photos, yellow and gold type, and white. I don't know why, but there you have it. The books are Jimmy Moore's Inside Out, Homework, a memoir of my Hollywood years by Julie Andrews, and Touched by the Sun, my friendship with Jackie by Carly Simon. I think all three have been or are on our bestseller list. So people are clearly interested in these books. Right. I mean, celebrity memoirs have actually been popular, dare I say it, since the 18th century. I mean, look at all the Highwaymen books from then. I mean, this is not a new thing. And they're not as popular as they used to be, I feel. Yeah, I feel like the real heyday of the celebrity memoir was in the 1980s and 1990s. And that's when you know, Ethel Merman would get a million dollars for hers. And, right. And, and when they actually really were the best-selling books of the year, they very rarely fall into that category now, with a few exceptions. Well, I'm so curious now. Ethel Merman, she did her memoir in the 80s? Uh-huh. Michael Cordes, the editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster, and because of his Hollywood connections, like, he signed everybody. And, of course, the trick to signing celebrity memoirs used to be you would go to a celebrity and you would say, hi, Ethel, I don't know, actually, if this happened in Ethel's case, I'll pay you a million dollars for your memoir. Mm -hmm. And so people would sign and they often wouldn't get around to writing for 10 or 20 years. And publishers just carried those on their books. No longer. No longer. I don't think that happens. There have been a number of celebrity memoirs in recent years that have gotten good reviews, and people say, oh, they're really wonderful. Frank Langella did one Mm -hmm. a few years ago that people liked. Rob Lowe. Where does this stand, these three books, the Demi Moore, Julie Andrews, Carly Simon, like for you and the sort of pantheon of of celebrity memoirs? How good are they? Well, I think none of them are must-read, frankly. Mm -hmm. Do you know how when you go to see the movie version of a beloved book— What I'm looking for when I go see that movie is, does it make me think about the book in a different way? Mm -hmm. Did the director or the screenwriter have a vision that I never even thought of, and now it's making me think of the book in a whole new way? That's a really good way to judge a movie. I think it's the the only way you can, because if you're going to just do it on how faithful the adaptation is, it's not going to be nuanced enough. Mm -hmm. So... None of these books pass that test. In these three books, I don't find out anything that makes me regard their work differently. I had hopes in the case of the Julie Andrews because this is her second memoir. And her first one, which was published in 2008, which was an account of her basically her teen years, mm-hmm. was was practically Dickensian. I mean, it was the story of how she supported her family by singing on this punishing music hall circuit. And she wrote it herself, and it was well-written. And so 
I came to this book, which begins, I believe, with Mary Poppins, hoping for the same thing. Because I think for me, like a lot of people, like I have trouble separating the Julie Andrews person that I think about in my head from characters like Mary Poppins and Maria Von Trapp. It all seems like a big mishmash to me. It seems like the same person. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really come away feeling any different. We should say that with Julie Andrews, it was co-written with Emma Walton Hamilton. Her daughter. And they write picture books together. So what, if anything, if people are not going to read this book, what are the juicy bits? What are the interesting things you did discover in reading this? I think the most interesting details in this book are about her second husband, Blake Edwards. The film director. The film director, Pink Panther, etc. While she's very careful about what she says about herself— She's pretty honest about his pain pill addiction, his attraction to young women, you know, his depression, his moods. I felt like I came away from the book understanding what made him tick mm-hmm. a lot more than her. As as far as, like, the details about her from her movies, I mean, we're talking, like, the kinds of things you learn are, oh, she showed up at— The Sound of Music auditioned Blonde because she'd accidentally dyed her hair orange and Blonde was the only way to cover it. Like, that's sort of the level of what you're getting. sort of level, actually. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Demi Moore because this book, I think, goes deeper than that. It does. And it's co-written. It's not credited on the cover, but co-written with Arielle Levy, who's a writer for The New Yorker and the author of a couple of books of her own, including her own memoir. Her own memoir, which was called The Rules Do Not Apply, which I loved. I don't know if you read. I did. And it was apparent from the very first page that a real writer, and I'm not saying that to be condescending, but that someone who really knows you know, their way around a sentence was involved in this book. And... That kept me reading. Mm -hmm. That and the fact that I just couldn't get over how frank she was willing to be. Yeah. I mean, that's what Dave Itzkoff, our colleague here at The Times, profiled to me more on the occasion of the publication. And it was a fascinating piece because she talked about her drug use. She talked about really difficult relationships that she has with her three daughters. And with her mother and how her mother treated her and her body image issues. I mean, there's a a passage in there where she's describing taking one of her kids to the pediatrician because she's not thriving. She isn't gaining weight since she's been born. The child is not. And she's several weeks old and she hasn't gained any weight. She's been dieting so much, Demi, that her body's breaking down the fat in her breast milk. And so her child is not getting nutrition. Wow. And I just thought— Man, (laughs) like, that is actually gutsy to put that out there. To lose that pregnancy weight. Right. To lose the pregnancy weight to get back in shape. Let's start with her childhood because she had, I remember even in the 1980s when she became famous early on with films like St. Elmo's Fire and uh, About Last Night, Mm -hmm. that people kind of knew that she had had a rough childhood. But I don't remember the details. What was her childhood like? I mean, her her mother basically sold her for sex, you know, to the highest bidder. Wow. I mean, it's pretty brutal. And she developed a drug addiction really, or a cocaine addiction really early. And But she writes about that. Like, she gets her first big role. She's taking herself to rehab and saying, look, I have to—I'm here, but I have to be out by this date because I have to be on a movie set. And she does it. 
And was that even during the era of St. Elmo's Fire? Because yeah. she played a kind of party girl who was struggling with right. addiction. Yes. yes. So that was real. Yeah, that was real. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And why do you think she chose to tell her story now? Well, it's interesting. She had a book deal, an existing book deal. Oh, so um, not, she got the Ethel Merman thing? She got the Ethel Merman treatment. She was supposed to be writing a book about mothers and daughters. And at the point at which the book is due is when her marriage to Ashton blew up. Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher, right? Kutcher? Yes, Kutcher. And that marriage blew up. So she didn't deliver. And people, like, stepped back and gave her time. And then when she was ready to write, she realized, of course, that that's not the book she needed to write. And if the book does have a failure, it's that it ends... Very quickly. Near the end, she's estranged from her daughters. During the course of her marriage to Ashton, she was estranged from them. And all of a sudden, they're back together. And so that happens very quickly and without a lot of explanation. All right. I think the most unusual of these three memoirs has to be Carly Simon's just Based on the premise, this is Touched by the Sun, My Friendship with Jackie. Jackie is, of course, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Who knew they were friends? Who knew they were friends? I knew that Jackie Onassis, when she was a book publisher, had edited Carly Simon's children's books. But I wasn't aware that they were friends at the time. So Jackie was an editor at Doubleday um, back in the day, really into into the early 90s. I think so, right. Before she died. So they were introduced by Jackie's son, by John. On Martha's Vineyard at a restaurant, and it seems unlikely, but they struck up this friendship. And I have to say, I had the most problems with this book in the sense that I felt that it was intrusive. Yeah, I mean, it feels opportunistic. It does. Like, why did Carly Simon need to write this book? I don't I don't understand it. Like, if there's sanctity in this kind of a friendship, if it meant this much to her— There's a scene at the end where Jackie is dying. She died of lymphoma. And Carly is there to pay a deathbed visit. And Jackie's unconscious at this point. But she's describing the bedroom and the apartment and what's going on and drunken Irish voices singing in the background. And it actually sort of made me cringe. The Kennedy family is notoriously private, especially around Jackie and her daughter, Caroline Kennedy. Has there been any reaction from the Kennedy family? No. With the publication of this book? There's been none. And are you surprised? Interesting. Yeah. And does Carly explain why she chose to write this book? She doesn't. She talks about how much this friendship meant to her. But when I read that, all I can think is, okay, that's great. But, like, that's for you. Yeah. That shouldn't be for the rest of us. You know, that's that's private. And— you know, they were friends. They did things together. But Jackie also clearly kept herself at a remove, and you see that in a description of some of the anecdotes. For example, Simon invited Onassis just one time, spur of the moment, to come over to her apartment. One time in all those years. See, that it just seems like not a close enough friendship right. on which to base a memoir. Right. A deeply personal memoir. You keep saying deeply personal. Let's just be frank here. What does she say about Jackie? Well, okay, so it is the deathbed stuff that bothers me the most. Just details about, you know, the jokes that she played and the things she liked to eat. and You know, all her little personal quirks. Like, mm-hmm. do we—should we know that? You know, the fact that Jackie told her that her husband, Jack Kennedy, was with another woman when one of their children was born. Hmm. Like, 
do I do I need to know that? I don't. So even if you're a Kennedy obsessive or completist, or maybe this book is only if you are a Kennedy obsessive or completist. I think it is, but you'll feel a tiny bit dirty reading it. Okay, so I'm going to run down the titles again. Homework, A Memoir of My Hollywood Years by Julie Andrews, Inside Out by Demi Moore, and Touched by the Sun, My Friendship with Jackie Carly Simon. You said up front that you don't feel like any of these are sort of must-reads, but Mm -hmm. was there one among them that particularly stood out? I think of the three that Demi Moore stood out because I'm not used to seeing a book that frank in an era where 99.9% of our celebrity memoirs are just vapid. So now I have to ask you, what are your favorite celebrity memoirs? Or name a few that you really liked, because that's a little easier. That, that's interesting. In general, I feel that musician memoirs mm-hmm. are more entertaining and honest and better written than memoirs by actors, because they, they don't care about burning bridges. I mean, I loved the Keith Richards. I read that. A life. A life. I read that. Through and through, Mm -hmm. you know, just sat down. Were you a fan of the Bruce Springsteen as well? You know, I liked but did not love the Bruce Springsteen. I felt like he needed an editor. Hmm. I felt like there were some passages that people should have said, Bruce, you know, (laughs) maybe not this anecdote about your daughter's horse. Right. Well, I guess you don't boss around the boss. Right. Any others that you really love recently? Recent ones, that's hard. I think I would have to go back in time. Like, I loved Catherine Hepburn's. Like, there's an example. There's an example of a great one, right? Mm -hmm. And she wrote it herself. I think... It's just so rare where you see Lauren the— Lauren Bacall, I think, also yes. did a good one. She did a great one, too. And those are both memoirs where you see the human being underneath. You know, it's not a pretty polished version of right. that actor. Well, it's interesting, too, because those come from an era in which the Hollywood actors were so much less accessible and so much more managed in their public image. That yes. To get any kind of glimpse felt like this really unusual access, whereas like now all the celebrities are doing, you know, no makeup, no filter, you know, photos and Instagram. So <laughs> right. we, we already know a little too much. Right. All right, Tina, thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Tina Jordan is my colleague at The Book Review, and she reviewed three celebrity memoirs in this week's issue of The Book Review. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Andrew Lavalli, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right. Actually, we have a bunch of people on this podcast, authors with difficult-to-pronounce names. Let's start with yours, John. You pronounce mine perfectly. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's see. Okay. I, well, I've pronounced this many times, so I hope I'm doing it right. The Nobel Prize winning writer J.M. Kutsaya and a woman named Arabella Kurtz co-wrote a book called The Good Story, Exchanges on Truth, Fiction, and Psychotherapy. It's a short book. This I should, is such a John Williams book. It is a John Williams book. I know. I'm very predictable. I'm reading New Grub Street still, which I talked about last week by George Gissing, but it's a 550-page novel. So, And it's easy to kind of pick it up and get back into the plot. You know, so. I looked for that book when I was in Austin at Book People, which is such a nice big bookstore. And I yeah. thought, if anyone has it, it'll be them. But they didn't have it. Yeah, it's in a Penguin Classics edition. I think you can find it in New York pretty easily. But this book that I picked up in the meantime to read is a, a sort of a 
just a conversation over the course of about 200 pages where Katsaya will write for two or three pages and then Kurtz will answer him. And basically, Kurtz is a is a psychotherapist and Katsaya seems to not have ever done therapy of any kind. So it's funny because Katsaya, who's brilliant and I, I love his writing, but in this book, I mean, he's very smart, but he's also in a weird way talking in circles and in these sort of lofty ways about something he clearly doesn't really know in his bones. Like he, he makes these conjectures about therapy that are kind of overarching or weirdly flighty. And then she brings him down to earth and just very lucidly explains like what she thinks goes on in the process. And what I'm finding is that I just love her voice and her writing. And I think, unfortunately, that she's only written, aside from this, like academic papers. So I'm hoping that one day she'll write her own Adam Phillipsy <laughs> book about psychology and, and human nature because she's great at at describing the uses of repression. You know, Katsaya will say something like, well, why can't we repress things and just be happy? Because they're repressed and we and and she'll say, well, we do do that a lot and that's fine. Like it's not that you can't repress anything. It's just that you use it like a volume knob like you and if you turn it all the way up and you completely repress something you're going to be fractured or like go crazy one day. Does um, she ever turn it on him and say like why can't we just erase characters altogether and just not <laughs> Not yet. I'm about a third of the way through the book. I'm hoping that she gets a little antagonistic cuz he's not mean-spirited obviously, but he's kind of prodding her a little bit like mm-hmm. you know He's her foil. He's a little bit of her foil, but she has none of it and she's just so smart that she she kind of just immediately doesn't shut him down but just explains things in a way that you go, "Oh, right, of course." Like he's being sort of artistic with a capital A and she's being very she's very pragmatic she reminds me a little bit of you know I've, I've talked people's ears off in the office about William James who I who I kind of worship and she's she's in that mold of like just you'd, you'd want her to be your therapist I think after yeah. reading this book you love books about therapy I, I do find. love books so that's about why therapy. That, yeah. yeah how does that make you feel <laughs> <laughs> my mom really liked books about therapy <laughs> Andrew what are you reading this week I am reading flights by Olga Tokarczuk This book came out in English last year, and then when she won the Nobel Prize for Literature, I felt like it's time for me to get with the program. This won the Men International Booker Prize, too, right? Yes, lots of prizes. It is very experimental. It's a novel and kind of hard to describe. I'm about a fifth of the way in or so, but it's a lot of very short scenes sprinkled with maps and diagrams and other visual stuff, all kind of about travel and bodies in motion. And it's fantastical, sort of. Maybe? A little bit, yeah. (laughs) And it seems like there's sort of one central narrator, but she will interact with people and the story will kind of spin off in their direction. And it's a character who... I was just traveling recently and I sort of have travel on the brain and she talks a lot about being nomadic and especially as a woman getting older, how she starts to become kind of invisible. But she likes that because it allows her to like pass unnoticed and Mm. drift in and out of people's lives and eavesdrop and all these things that I was sort of thinking about as I was running around to Europe. This is the first Tokurchik that you've read? Yes. Uh, Because she has a book newly translated in English that just came out this year. And the translator of Flights also has a book that just came out. Jennifer Croft. The the thing that got me particularly curious about this one is that our own Parle Segal described it as a busy, beautiful vexation. (laughs) And I felt like that was calling my name. That's a beautiful Parle phrase. I love that that book is called Flights. And then the new one has like a 19-word Fiona Apple-like title. It's like, when you cross over the boneyard of the railroad, whatever. Greg, what are you reading this week? Something with a shorter title. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading two very small books, um, one fiction and one nonfiction. The fiction is a novella by Mary Gateskill called This Is Pleasure. 
officially the book comes out next week, I think on Tuesday next week. But it was published as a novella in full this summer in The New Yorker, so I figure I can still talk about it here. And this is Mary Gaitskill's take on the Me Too era, which I was so happy to see that she addressed that in her fiction because the Me Too era in general is such Mary Gaitskill territory. It's sexual desire, it's power dynamics, it's gender roles. And she's um, looking at all of that in the publishing industry through the alternating narratives between an editor who has made his way onto a list, a petition of men behaving badly and how that affects his career. And then through the perspective of a woman who's a close friend of his and her husband, and and you get conversations with a woman who signed the petition and didn't realize this guy was Mm -hmm. on there and kind of all, all the implications there. And because it's fiction and because it's Gateskill in particular, who is very sympathetic to sexual desire and power play and gender dynamics and gender roles. She does not condemn the man, but she it, it's very nuanced and subtle about kind of the shift in eras from a much more licentious period to this much more restricted mm-hmm. time that we're in now. And, and she's exploring it from all those angles. The nonfiction book that I'm reading is a little one-off. It's called A Pocket History of Human Evolution, How We Became Sapiens. It's by a couple of French writers, a scientist named Sylvana Condemi and a journalist named Francois Savatier. You know, I'm just a sucker for paleoanthropology, and I always wish that I understood it better, more innately than I do. History is always a little bit tough for me. I have trouble remembering whether the first Italo-Ethiopian War came before the second Italo-Ethiopian War. When are you going to get that right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Human evolution, you know, I know there's Australopithecus and... uh, (laughs) You're making me feel really stupid. (laughs) Oh, of course, Um, yes. I've read a lot about evolution for a long time and I can never keep all the pieces of it kind of quite in line and I keep looking for the book that will unlock that for me. And and so I'm reading this with great enjoyment. It's not unlocking it for me at all and it's confused <laughs> as ever. And they they take quite a rigorous scientific approach to it. Even in talking about emotions and the human capacity for empathy, they're still talking about kind of how your blood vessels dilate and mm. it's very biological, very looking at bone structure and the size of the skull and uh, how we shed our fur to make us better runners, things like that. <laughs> it is very pocket-sized too. I'm going to try to find a copy. It's pretty inside, well-illustrated, Yeah, it's, it's different colors. And... It's comprehensive. It's I mean, it is reader-friendly, mm-hmm. just not helping me understand where we came from. just not doing its actual job yeah Uh, pamela what are you reading uh i just finished reading the new zadie smith collection of short stories grand union her first collected short stories and it's it's an eclectic collection stories date from 2013 to 2017 the reviews have been kind of mixed which you know often happens for story collections because it's hit or miss it's a little hit or miss but there are you know the thing about zadie smith is she's such a good writer she's so observant and I think just smart that even the stories that aren't necessarily successful doesn't feel like you've wasted your time. I think there's only one story where I felt like I had wasted my time, but it's probably because I was the only person that, you know, didn't really get the premise until like way too late. It's a story about 9-11, the day of 9-11, where Michael Jackson, Marlon Brando, and Elizabeth Taylor all sync up and 
flee the city together. <laughs> and, you know, she only uses first names. And I don't know if it's celeb cluelessness or just like my database of celebrities, like mm. that those they expired in my. But I did not know who Michael, Marlon and Liz were. I mean, Marlon seems obvious, but Michael and Liz, you'd have to you know really be up Marlon on Marlon was not obvious to me, Greg. I was like, Marlon James, why is he? But I didn't even realize they were celebrities. And it just kept talking about how, you know, Marlon wanted to keep stopping at fast food restaurants along the way. <laughs> but I assume that part of the, I haven't read that one, but I assume that part of her trick is that she's trying to make it seem like they're not, like, you know, he's not wearing a sequin glove. You know, she's right, <laughs> right. You're supposed to be a little bit confused. Maybe. Yes, yes, yes. She's deliberately playing with you. And she plays, so I was played. Um, <laughs> but the stories that I liked the most were the ones that, you know, felt, frankly, more essayistic than fictional that sort of felt like little, like, essays or uh, almost exercises in which the narrator feels very close to Zadie Smith herself. And Zadie Smith at this particular time in her life, which is, I think she's 43 now or 44, and she has children and she's married and has this, you know, this sort of same fraught domestic life of any working mother in a big city. And the stories that in particular that stood out, and, and sometimes formalistically, they can be experimental within that. So there was one called Mood, where the way in which she tells the story is kind of experimental, even though the content of it feels very much like it's coming from Zadie's own point of view, whereas there are other stories where she really writes in a very different character. And some of those stories are quite good. There's one in which I think it's called Adele Needs a Corset. <laughs> I hope it's called that. It's that's something a great title. like that. The narrator is a middle aged trans woman shopping for a corset because she has sort of burst out of her old one. And she is in a shop in which the shop owner misgenders her. But, you know, even then, the voice of that, that character is a little bit, you feel like Zadie Smith herself, just like cranky with the world. The two stories that stood out to me the most were one called Sentimental Education and another called The Lazy River, which I think feels like it's very much of the moment and about Brexit. And it takes place hmm. in this cheesy resort in the south of Spain. But overall, I would recommend it. And several of the stories have been out there in the world already. Yes. I think it's something like 8 to 10 had been previously published in Granta or The New Yorker. Have you read The Lazy River? And I read I think The Lazy River, yeah. yeah. What were your impressions? It was one of those kind of like you said where I didn't actually read it as fiction. I thought it was some sort of personal essay. Yes. Her kind of reflecting I on I feel like she's vacation. been to that Spanish resort and I was actually kind of curious. I mean she doesn't depict it in a particularly great light but nonetheless I was like I am sort of curious about yeah, it. sounded kind of nice. I'm like it sounds better than Club Med. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right let's run down the books again. Andrew what did you read? I'm reading Flights by Olga Tokarczyk. I'm reading This is Pleasure by Mary Gateskill and A Pocket History of Human Evolution by Sylvana Condemi and Francois Savatier. And I am reading the good. <laughs> we really did pick names this week. I'm reading the good story: exchanges on truth, fiction, and psychotherapy by J. M. Katsaya and Arabella Kurtz. All right, and very simply, Zadie Smith. I just read <laughs> Grand Union, her new collection of stories. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thank, Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com/books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.